0: in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth now the earth was with formless and uh, empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said let there be light and there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. There was evening and morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark the days and the years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters teem with living creatures and let birds fly over the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, (laughs) livestock creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created people in his own image, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they'll be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens.
1: Now, what you just witnessed, wasn't that lovely? Thank you to Mary Christianberry and Stephanie Church for their creativity. What you just witnessed is a wonderful visual illustration of something I said last week. Last week, if you were here, I said there's really only one point about Genesis 1 I'd like to communicate. Were some of you here? And were some of you listening? Or are you going to prove my friend Mark Carr right that people don't really remember sermons? (laughs) Last week I said there's really only one point I'm interested in communicating today, and that is that the language of Genesis is not the language of science. Somebody was here. The language of Genesis 1 is not the language of science. It doesn't ask the questions of science. It doesn't answer specifically the questions of science. In fact, for the Israelites, it wouldn't make sense the way our world is fragmented with religion and science. For them, this was an integrated experience. What you saw up here this morning doesn't possibly speak the language of science. And just to for such a jarring representation, do you you know what the Science has been up to this week in our world. Some of you do on Wednesday. With a super collider, supposedly a lever was switched. And look at how different these images are over Geneva and France. The project that nuclear physicists are working on, this large hadron collider, over a thousand scientists from a dozen countries, a budget of $8 billion, which I understand they've doubled, Now, I care about nuclear physics as much as I care about eating green vegetables, i got to tell you. (laughs) And I was a science major. So I will give you a very simple summary of what I think is happening here. Incredibly small particles are moving through an incredibly large track, 17 miles, at an incredibly high speed, and they will collide and we will see what happens. And the results will be sent back to the scientists. Asking some of America's, some of the world's most important questions. Where did the universe come from? Looking for what they call the God God particle, Higgs particle information. A large hadron collider. The language these scientists will speak, the biggest piece of scientific equipment ever crafted, by the way, in history, is not the language of Genesis 1. Nor is the language of Genesis 1 history, historical record, specifically, carefully, chronologically recorded sequence of events. It it can't be, otherwise we have a problem by the time we get to Genesis 2. And we have another creation story, which is different, and the careful reader would have to ask, well, did it happen this way or this way? Genesis 1 or Genesis 2. What we have, I said last week, was a different kind of language in Genesis 1. I said it's poetry, but not just Hebrew poetry. It's story, but not just simple storytelling. It's an an exalted kind of language. And I've been very persuaded by the work of uh, C. John Collins when he calls Genesis 1 in particular exalted prose narrative. And because that's cumbersome, I'll just say exalted storytelling. It's art. It's exquisite. It's unmatched in, in history. And all we have to do is look at Genesis 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and lay them side by side with Genesis 1. For by the time we begin with Genesis 2, we see a very simple storytelling. And this happened and that happened, and this person came and that person left. But Genesis 1, this exalted way of telling a story, how can we know? By the words, the vocabulary it uses, the words it chooses. God creates and God makes. By the way, this creator whose voice we never hear speaks everything into existence. Let there be, as Lou just said, which is a wish, not a command, and whatever the creator wishes for exists. By this careful pattern of wishing for something, and then it emerges, and then God reflects upon it, and evening and morning come, a sequence that happens again and again and again. By this refrain the creator uses and calls it good, and I chuckled this week when I reread the story. Good? That's the best word God could come up with. Good is what we use for food, for our favorite food. Good is for Sabbath afternoon conversations and for a hike and for a movie we like. Good. Cooka's burritos, that's good. Donna Zupan's bread, good. The conversations in Loma Linda last Sabbath, you could choose between the Good News Tour and Desmond Ford. Very good. Good conversations last week. But the Creator looks at this vast expanse above and wishes for light and and looks at the expanse below and wishes for water and looks at the dry ground and wishes for animals and humans and calls that good? This very understated way of assessing what the Creator's done, and it was good. The power of it comes in the refrain again and again and again. It was good, it was good, it was good, and it was very good. And finally the reader begins to... Well, we're persuaded maybe it it is good. Exalted way of telling a story, it must be good. It's in the way the story is told in Genesis 1. It's a category all of its own. Now, some might say, what does that matter? What difference does it make to the way we live? How will it change this week? Good questions, by the way. We ought to be asking every time we open Scripture. It matters because it will form the way we approach the text and the questions we will ask of the text. If we understand its exalted storytelling, a unique way of expressing what happened, it means we will uh, focus our energy and direct our questions in a way that's appropriate that the text could respond to. And it means we won't waste our time. Last week, I suggested we do, Christians, waste some time as we ourselves hover over Genesis 1, asking the the text to answer questions that it really can't answer. Here's just a handful of those questions from the very first beginning in Genesis 1. We read what seems to be in conflict. The Lord came and created, supposedly out of nothing. We're taught in Christian doctrine, the doctrine of creation. But the earth is without form and void, and there's darkness over the face of the deep. And does and, and, and that mean there's really something that's just unformed? There's a matter that's formless and uninhabited? Or does it mean there really was totally nothing, and, and God began with Nothing. Does it mean there was some matter that was unproductive? Maybe it laid there for millions of years, and God at some point entered history and began to do something productive and form it and shape it for God's purpose. The text doesn't really help us. Day one, God creates light and separates uh, night from day, and, and as many of you know, day four, there are, is more light, the great lights, lights in day, by day four, and and people ask well why was that not enough light on day 1 and scientists and theologians have all sorts of conversation how do you reconcile day 1 and day 4 was day one simply the potential for light and day four was, was now light on assignment? It's got its particular function. Or did somehow the presence of God emit a light that explains one or the other? What's a greater light and a lesser light? If you already had evening and morning, and how can 24 hours day have passed if, there, if the lights really weren't all on on day one? Were they on or weren't they? And that gets us to evening and morning, that 24-hour time period. We are probably the most invested in this part of the conversation because by the time it comes to Sabbath, we really care that there were six days of work and that seventh literal day, the Sabbath, is for our rest. But evening plus morning doesn't equal 24 hours, we know, right? It does, however, mark the end of God's work and the beginning of God's work the next day, and there is a cycle for God's work. God works and then takes an evening and a morning, and God begins to work again. But is that 24 hours? text doesn't tell us. The animals, they're made broad, in these specific categories, a category, a kind, a variety, but, but not any one animal or plant is named, it has a specific kind of name and species attached. Well, what does that mean for all the speciation in the world today, the variety of plant and animal life we now live with? The text doesn't say that whatever was created during that time was the only thing that was ever created. Does it mean then that other species could, could be created from what happened during that first those first few days. New species could be developed. It simply says that, that the, the fruit will bear fruit according to its kind and the animal will, will bear animal according to its kind. But these are broad categories. The word there in Hebrew, it's a broad category. It's not specific. It's not detailed. We can get into trouble here. Trying to make the Bible say what we'd like the Bible to say. Several years ago, Christianity Today reported on a gentleman who was arrested for smoking marijuana, and he pleaded Genesis one twenty nine as his text, as his defense, because the Bible says, I give you every seed-bearing plant, he said. This is a true story. It happened several years ago, and the judge listened to that defense, I give you every seed-bearing plant, and the judge said, well, I am going to have to find you guilty of marijuana possession, but you could, of course to a higher authority. So we use our time asking these questions of the text, which we care a lot about. I'm not sure if Exalted Story can answer all of those questions. In Genesis 1 alone in particular, So what can exalted story do? I believe what it always does is point us towards something more, something beyond the details, something beyond the specifics of any passage. In this case, the story of our beginnings, it points us towards the creator and what the creator is doing. So if we look at the text and ask that question, where is the creator? Where does the creator spend its time? And what is the creator doing with that time on that task? While we won't read all of chapter 1 again, you heard Lou read it earlier, I will just summarize, highlight what I think I see the creator up to in Genesis chapter 1, the creator who made the heavens and the earth and all that's in between. I notice that creation is an invitation in this book in this chapter of Genesis. Creation is at the invitation of God. And and while it's very organized and patterned, no one ever says, well, God is very organized, do they? The narrator doesn't say that. We can just tell. Of course, God is very organized. This is a very orderly creation. But it is also totally at the will of the creator. Let there be. It isn't a command. It's a wish. It's a volitional statement. It's, I think I'd like to see... Light. I think I'd like to have stars. I think I'd like to see animals and people and fish. It is what the creator wishes, and then what the creator wishes for comes to be. All of creation is an invitation, and it happens again and again at the will of the creator. I would say one of the most rewarding worship experiences I have ever had happened with a group of third graders sitting in a circle on a floor in a classroom when they were invited to wish to, to use the phrase from Genesis 1, let there be. What would they wish for had they been the one to create the world that day? How would they finish that phrase, let there be? And the answers came so quickly from these third grade students. Let there be candy. First wish. Let there be recess. Let there be no homework. Someone said, let there be golden arches. another girl let there be mommy and we start to get at not only the whimsy and the play of God the imagination and creativity of God but also the core of what matters to God to be with creation the creative act is an invitation I see that in Genesis chapter 1 Because God wants it so. It's all at God's invitation. The creation of all things also carries the imprint of God. God's good imprint is everywhere in the story. Dustin will take this up next week as he preaches and and takes up the verses, what it is to be made in the image of God, humans, male and female. And Isaac, a couple of weeks later, when he speaks about what it is to be humans created in this image, who have been given this task to care for creation. But for this morning, let me just say, it's very interesting to note, if you count the verses there, how many of the verses are directed at non-human creation. It is almost the whole of the first chapter, till you get down to verse 26. God is occupied with all sorts of non-human created matter, and in fact, the first blessing, the first, the first uh, blessing from the hand of God and from the mouth of God in the Bible comes not to humans, but it comes to creatures Genesis 1, verse 22, God blessed them on the fifth day. This is God blessing them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. earth." And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. God's first blessing doesn't come to us. It comes to the created world. You see, we have no choice but to be invested in the created world, all of it. We have no choice but to care about it because God cares about it. And in fact, the Bible says the very character of God, the imprint of our good God is on the created world. It's out there. Which means Christians necessarily must be interested. Even Protestant Christians with the, the battle cry of sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible alone. Isn't it interesting? Before the Bible's even written, before we even have the Genesis story recorded to share together... We already know, but it, it can't be only the Bible because God's character is imprinted out there in the created world also. So we must be concerned with it. We'll have Ben Claussen here with us in a couple of weeks at the end of the month as a geologist, as a scientist who cares deeply about the created world. Humans have no choice for the good imprint of God is in the world, but the good imprint of God is also on you in inhumanity. God's imprint is borne out on every human being. And I wonder sometimes if we forget this and if from time to time we need to be reminded it was about the fourth century when church doctrine was significantly being formed in Augustine and during this time period when somehow the human nature conversation and the sinful nature of humans and the, the fallen nature of humans seemed to become the story that we told, that, that humans are fallen, sinful, wicked, problematic. And if it wasn't for a loving Savior and a Creator and a Redeemer, we would be in huge trouble. And I remember this story growing up in the church in Sabbath school class. I was always told this, and then told that, that because of Jesus' gift on the cross and the bleeding of Jesus, that somehow I would be all right. I was never told I was good, but I would, I would survive, I remember leaving Sabbath school not real pleased with myself. I was created good, but I wasn't receiving the message that I was good. And along about the time I went back to school to study, Um, my theology program and the girls were growing up I remember taking this so seriously at home I was so furious that that somehow I grew up and maybe some of you not really feeling good in God's sight not really understanding and appreciating you carry the good imprint of a creator around the world that with the girls I remember one day someone uh, they were saying goodbye and the girls were going out the door and someone said to them be good I just bristled as their new educated parent and from then on in our house it was no longer be good you are good so we say to them when they go out the door be decent (laughs) and they will tell you and their friends will tell you what is up with your mother this be decent stuff (laughs) because you are good already now go out into the world and choose decency with your goodness is what I'm telling them it's a small subtle profound difference You carry the imprint of goodness around the world. Now, the Israelites would would understand what you and I feel in our world. We look around and we don't see it. We don't see it all the time. Most of the time, we primarily don't see goodness in our world because we understand what evil has done. Yet, Genesis 1 says, proclaims, you are not children of the darkness, you are children of good." A good creator. It is all over. This exalted story should not be forgotten. Easy to forget. We ought to tell our children, you're made in the image of a good God. Most importantly, creation is given the presence of a creator. Did you notice when the children and Arwen were up here, did you notice that when, when God finished God's work, God didn't just take off. Did you notice God taking up residence and staying for a while? Many people have seen this pattern in the Genesis 1 story that God creates a habitat and then God creates inhabitants to fill it up. I'm going to use a little different language, and I credit my theology professor, Dr. Webster. God forms something, and then God fills something, and it's a pattern with the creation days that, that is carried out all the way until the seventh day. On the first day, God forms this expanse, the lights, the light in the, the sky above, and on day four, the sun, moon, and stars are made. On day two, There's sky and there's water. And on day five, the sky and the water are filled with birds and sea creatures. On day three, land and the sea. And day six, the land and the sea are filled with land animals and there are humans put upon the land. And then we come to day seven where God creates the Sabbath and God, uh, what? What's the parallel there when God creates the Sabbath? Genesis 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, God rested from all this work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on this day, he rested from all the work of creating that had been done. When we get to the Sabbath, this sacred space and time that God also formed, God sits down and fills up the Sabbath with God's self. God pours himself into the Sabbath. And stays for a while. Do you see that? God giving his very self to creation. It's so significant for Israel. The creation story, they are probably the most familiar with. The Babylonian creation story, at the very end, Marduk, the god, when that god is finished creating, that god throws a party. Marduk has a party in his own honor, glorifying Marduk. But Israel's god sits down. And rests with creation. Gives his very presence to that which has been created. I don't know Adventist Christians. Does your Sabbath look like that and feel like that? Can you tell when you come to this seventh day that God has pulled up a chair and is sitting with you for a while? Wouldn't it be a horrible thing to know about the right day? And totally be lost on the way of this Sabbath. I like the author who says, Sabbath is the day which I hand my life back to God to remember that it's not my own. And then that changes how I live the next six days. The creation story is an invitation of God. It carries the good imprint of the creator everywhere. And the creation enjoys the presence of this creator who pulls up a chair and stays, is connected now. It's a union. God is wed to all that God's created, and nobody's getting God out of this story now. This is God's world, as we sang. This is the story that we find ourselves in. And for Israel, the ultimate truth to be known is not that we would have faith in creation, not that we would have faith in the Sabbath, not that we would have faith somehow in the the institution of marriage or the work given to the humans, not that we would have faith in any fact or detail like that, but that we would have faith in a God who stands behind and above and in this creation. Which is why the Psalms and Isaiah are full of statements. I am the one God. There is no other but me. You don't have deities to choose from, Israel. You don't have to be afraid, Israel. I am the one God who stays with you. God's character is shown in the way the story is told. That's what matters. So it also matters then that we take care of the story that we find ourselves in, that we repeat it often, that we, we understand it, that we direct our energy where it should be, that we ignore what we can't prove. Because if, if we're not careful with the story, that's when we distort it and we damage it and we forget it and, and it loses its meaning, the story we find ourselves in. There was a reporter Jackie Benazinski, who traveled to Ethiopia during the 1985 famines in that country, horrible famines, you may remember the Ethiopians fleeing. Many of them went to the Sudan border, and for Jackie, she wanted to see about these Ethiopian refugees, so she she took herself to the Sudanese refugee camps and stayed for a while. 100,000 people in one camp at a time. Hundreds of people dying every day. Entire villages that would pick up and walk because they heard there was water somewhere up ahead. Some of them walking three weeks to find water, only to arrive and find they'd run out of water. And for days and days, she witnessed the poverty and the disease and the death and the anger and the hostility and the violence in these refugee camps. But she noticed at nighttime, when everyone laid asleep and you could hear the coughing and the vomiting and angry outbursts still going on, at a certain time every night these village people would gather their children and you could hear a sweet rhythm and a deep chant, night after night after night. Village, villagers who, had, who really didn't understand how they got from where they were to where they now are. Yet they gathered their children and sang their story, night after night, from one generation to the next the story that connected them, the story in which they found meaning, the story so precious and vital to their survival, as vital as water, that not a night would go by that the villagers didn't sing to their children their story of origins. And it makes me wish I'd done things differently with my family. Oh, that we would lay these children and grandchildren down every night and, and tell them the story of Genesis 1 instead of singing silly songs. Oh, that they would hear the sweet chants and the deep rhythms of a God who calls you good, who invites you into existence and gives you a task for meaning. It's a story we, we must tell regularly, daily, so we don't forget. It's a story that is to be taken care of. My friend says it this way, take care of the stories you tell, for the stories you tell will take care of you. Amen. There isn't more to say, church, but again, the church can say, Amen. Amen. I invite you, if you've come for prayer today, remember that the prayer team is here to pray for you. Big and small, urgent, praise, whatever it is. Down front, you'll see people with a tag on their jacket uh, to pray with you. And go, would you, in this very good story. Amen.